0: Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Meninga. In this episode, I talk with Isaac Sharp. Isaac is a visiting professor at Union Theological Seminary. He is also the author of the recently released book, The Other Evangelicals, a story of liberal, black, progressive, feminist, and gay Christians, and the movement that pushed them out. You can get connected with Isaac and his work in the links in the episode description. Today we have Isaac Sharp with us, and Isaac, you are a visiting assistant professor at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. Uh, I've actually been to uh, Union once. I actually work for a seminary, uh, a different seminary, but I have been to Union once, and it, like, I got to see like the Bonhoeffer bust and got to see like the, the big-ass uh, library and everything. It was pretty impressive. It, it felt like you were walking into something important when you walk into Union.
1: It is a, it is a thing. It's got the, uh, the very castle like, uh, uh, you know, the old Oxford style thing that, uh, right. there's a lot of stuff that's been filmed here. Right. Uh, I saw,
0: um, what's the, the beautiful mind, right. Uh, the yeah. John Nash movie. Yeah. I saw a, that.
1: There's some of those scenes that back in the day they did, I think some of the, a couple maybe of the Harry Potter stuff around oh, really? the, in wow. maybe the dining hall or something like that. The, law and order svu is here all the time so a pro tip if you are watching law and order svu and you see a scene set on a uh idyllic college campus quad that's usually the union seminary quad uh really often is one of the cooler ones recently is um uh mazel filmed a lot here Mm. uh because the um the Tony Shalhoub character is a Columbia professor in that show and so okay. they used uh, union for a lot of that so How anyway about
0: that yeah. wonderful well uh, one of the other things that you do besides visiting being a visiting professor of clearly the most like film theological school in the country is that you recently wrote a book called The Other Evangelicals and the subtitle is A Story of Liberal Black Progressive Feminist and Gay Christians and the movement That pushed them out. That is... That's a... The subtitle is a book itself right there. Uh, But my goodness, it is... An incredible book, especially as somebody like myself who grew up in the evangelical world. Uh-huh. I feel like a lot of the folks that listen to this uh to listen to the podcast also grew up in that world. They're kind of former evangelical folks. Uh, this is an incredible book to really get some sense about like the breadth of the evangelical tradition and to see like how horrific things are happening, like the just the the horror uh, of what's going on. But unbelievable book. But before we start talking about the book, I want you to be able to introduce yourself. So who is Isaac Sharp to Isaac Sharp?
1: Uh, Yeah, no. uh, Well, thanks first uh, of all for having me, Mason. Absolutely. Uh, And good to officially meet. Uh, I, I think we have like probably virtually run into some same alleyways okay. on the on the in the online spaces there you know to Did metaphors. I say something that
0: got you know pissed you off or anything cuz that happens no, a lot. I, that's I, always I great think we've, I think mean, we we've
1: probably uh in, in this the circles we move and the uh, of the uh, I I keep an eye on the uh, theology Twitter and uh okay. m- move in and out of those spaces so I think we've pro- we've probably been in some uh uh, threads together a couple of times, I think, and yeah, so nice to finally officially meet yeah, you. Thanks for having me. Um, uh, as you said, I'm Isaac. I work here at Union, where I got my PhD. Also, I uh, finished my PhD in 2019, and uh, yeah, this book is the first uh, kind of out there published result of my dissertation. So mm. it is uh, um, based on that and. Uh, yeah, it's, I'm excited for it to be out in the world. This is a uh, this is a fun thing uh, getting to talk about something I spent uh, way 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 too long
0: writing. I would imagine so. Well, because this is your dissertation, I imagine like it's your first like published book, right? Um, I yeah,
1: officially yes, okay. as a as a single author, I have a couple of things that I like edited volumes that okay. I did with. Um, One, uh, Evangelical Ethics that I co-edited with uh, David Gushy that is a kind of reader in different 20th century evangelical perspectives on ethics. Um, And then I did another uh, edited volume um, that was a feshrift for a past
0: union president. But yes, this is the first uh, single authored book by me. Love it. Love it. Well, with that said, was there anything that you learned about yourself as you wrote your very first single-authored book uh, that maybe you didn't know about yourself before? Maybe you're like, wait, I had no idea that I had that in me.
1: Along the along the trajectory of the dissertation into the book, <laughs> I what did I what did I learn about myself? Because this is a, it's a long process. I think it was. Um, some that this would be as i imagine is not unique for anybody who does a phd that Mm -hmm. uh you are signing on for a project that is going to take you many 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 years to finish and the fact that i you know i uh now that we're on the side of it uh the fact that i could do it right is something that i learned because i had never written you know something this long and extensive before uh and here we are it's out in the world and so i uh guess i learned that i could write a book
0: (laughs) how about that well on to the next one i guess Um, what did you learn maybe historically or kind of factually as you wrote the book? Obviously, this is very much like a history type of book rather than you making like some sort of theological proposals and whatnot. But was there anything as you were doing research where you're like, I had no idea about that? I, you know, I imagine when you write a book, like you already, for the most part, know a lot of the things that you're going to be writing about. But yeah, was there anything that you learned about while you were researching where you're like, wow, had no idea about that?
1: Yes. And it came, it's in some ways came in waves because a lot of folks that I, as I've been doing some interviews and discussions about the book ask, you know, like, why, why did you write this? What motivated you to write this? Like, when, how did you start down this trajectory? And so answering that question in some ways answers this question because it is the case that the wheels started turning on this subject for me um, a, a, at different points. But w- but one impetus was working with David Gushy on this evangelical ethics book. We mm-hmm. had to make like, as you know, the assignment is uh, to develop a reader in evangelical ethics. So then you have to ask the question, what is and e- what counts as an evangelical ethicist? Who is an evangelical ethicist who gets to decide? Mm-hmm. And so in the process of research for that book, I started Learning that this question of who is an evangelical and who's not an evangelical is not only fraught, which I had a sense of, but there's a history behind the debates and the struggle over evangelical identity that is much more complex and uh, goes further back than I think most people understand and even that i understood and so some of the kind of discovery process was making uh the surprising realization that there are people who were making similar kinds of arguments that are currently happening in evangelical circles Hmm. decades ago and that these folks and just truly discovering these folks right the some of it was the case that realizing that there were these other you know (laughs) that there were these other evangelicals who were not the uh evangelicals that everyone knows and has heard about so i yeah i learned uh some of that was the initial process and then along the way i had you know breadcrumbs of certain places to look, but then following those breadcrumbs uh, ended up finding even more interesting pieces of the puzzle uh, and more interesting folks in the story. So,
0: Well, it's funny you bring that up because my very next question then was the fact that obviously you open up the book talking about how evangelicals have understood themselves and how they may even describe or define themselves. And obviously, like you said, it's an impossible task to like figure out in an exact definition that everybody agrees upon, right? That's clearly not the case. But you, you must have had some sort of like operating definition or description of evangelicalism that you're using as you're writing the book. So can you talk at least about like the best way or at least the description or definition that you're using as you're writing the book. I'm, I'm really curious about that, knowing that obviously, like, it's not going to be the definitive definition or anything like that. But yeah, I'm curious what yours was the, as you were writing the book.
1: Yeah, so this is the, the definitional debates are inherent to the story in a lot of ways. And that was one of the, as I said, the, was the discoveries that there was this thing going on about this wrangling over evangelical identity going, going way back. So I didn't. I don't even. I, there may be one place that I venture a kind of tentative. Here would be one way of describing right. evangelicalism in the contemporary U.S. context. the The old joke that the that I reference in the book is that the that some evangelical historians used to use was uh, that an evangelical in the U.S. context. anybody who likes Billy Graham. It's not a bad. It, it works to, up to a point, and but it also captures something, and it is that uh it captures lots of, it captures a few things one that um evangelicalism in the US context in the 20th century and 21st century which is primarily what I was focusing on is this kind of um uh, nebulous transdenominational movement sub or subculture or network of mm-hmm. schools publishing houses uh record labels institutions that have that have developed this that are a network that developed um are specifically around this notion of evangelical identity um, a thing that um gushy and i used in the evangelical ethics book that i think is a um is a helpful way of even discussing discussing this like how to draw the lines and where to look in the u.s context um is uh, you know, evangelical, you know, uh, the joke, I make this joke explicitly in the book that it's like, it's actually like, it's like the judge says about hardcore pornography. Can't define it, but I know it when I, one see one it. I see it. This is, and like, it, it's funny, but it is also to your, as you were talking about uh, listeners be coming out of the evangelical worlds, it's, it's even got, it, it's like it's, its own language, right? There's like the idiom, right? Oh, totally. the idiomatic phrases where like, if somebody says a certain kind of phrase, you're like, huh. And, they, and they, may, they themselves may not even say, you know, I am evangelical. They may not even use the language, but you, it's, you know, which... But if you're doing
0: life together, I know it, what right? you might this, mean. That,
1: this is exactly one of them, right? Um, uh, God has laid something on your heart. The, these, these kinds right. of doing life together, these kinds of phrases are an idiomatic culture thing in evangelical circles. And it, it, is, um, in, it indicates something. This is a long-winded way of, of saying that, you know, I, I don't venture a definition per se as like a definitive, but I, I suggest, you know, in the 20th century context in the U.S., e- what evangelicalism became is this network of institutions that is a transdenominational group of Christians that generally the kind of initial defining border guarding that happened with evangelical leaders was around conservative, we are conservative Christians, not like those liberal Christians. And then part of the story of the book is um, making an argument about how that network made decisions about more specific things to add to the definition of what a true evangelical is over time. Right. So yeah, the, the definition the if I'm working with the definition in the in the book it is generally uh, evangelicalism as it is represented in a book that i am focusing on uh one way to talk about it, it's a discourse it's a discourse in 20th century christ- protestant christianity um about yeah, yeah who is a in some ways one of the is about who's a true christian because that's how evangelical identity often gets wielded totally. in certain circles um, absolutely this is the long way of maybe dodging your question
0: <laughs> it's totally fine it's not the first person to dodge a question that i ask <laughs> Probably, rightfully so. All good. (laughs) I just saw Kristen Dume recently, and she was talking about how evangelicals, the the sort of leaders of evangelicalism, often want to define evangelicalism theologically, right? And there's like the the Bebington or whatever that guy's name is. Like there, there's all that, those kind of definitions. But what I like about what you're doing, and I think others do, in trying to create some sort of description or definition of evangelicalism is actually to talk about it uh, culturally. Because if you look at the theological definitions of evangelicalism from the evangelical leaders, it really isn't all that different than what a lot of other Christians believe, Uh, even like Catholic Christians or mainline Protestant Christians, or even maybe some Eastern Orthodox Christians as well. Like It's not all that different. So what is it that differentiates evangelicalism if it isn't just simply theological beliefs from other Christians, I think it is something about the cultural artifacts that come up. It's the institutions, it's the media. Yeah, you were kind of you know describing the the kind of culture that is a part of evangelicalism, and that really seems to be what differentiates it from other. Christian traditions, and so I really like that way of describing evangelicalism and thinking about evangelicalism uh, but the the problem that I think evangelical leaders would have of that is then that's super amorphous because it isn't actually just simply a theological definition so evangelicalism is constantly changing if it's just simply a cultural definition because culture changes all the time, right, and so that's where I can see like evangelical leaders being really hesitant of thinking it as a cultural definition or cultural uh, th- that that's what differentiates evangelicalism from other christian uh traditions because culture changes and so yeah. therefore evangelicalism is constantly changing as well
1: yeah a hundred percent and yes and so i an interesting thing to me around these questions of so i actually um I do a both, or personally, I would take a both and approach to this uh, for uh, for a couple of reasons. One is I'm uh, a little hesitant to definitively say, this is culture. This is theology um, and draw the lines so neatly. I think that it is often more complicated than that. Human beings are, we're complex and we have complex sets of motivations and preconceived notions and Interests and desires, and so on and so forth. And so, this um, whenever this question of yes, there are attempts to define it theologically, Um, and some of what I narrate in the book is involves those attempts, right? By by evangelical leaders to say you must believe X, Y, Z, and that makes you an evangelical. The thing that I I am in part think I am uncovering a little bit in the book is that it is also about power. Right. Mm. That the definite, the definitions of evangelicalism um, to uh, Kristen Dumais' point about defining it theologically, I that that is an important point. And also a point that I would add is it may even when it, it may be about theology, it's also about power such mm-hmm. that it's uh, those who are defining it theologically have the power to do so. And that's an important piece of this puzzle, I think, because totally. there are junctures where you see the theological part of the story. I end up telling is that you know there are these folks who say I fit your theological definition. I I love the you know I these evangelical these lost forgotten evangelical figures, other evangelicals, some uh, who I some of some of those who I talk about, you know, say things like. I believe in the authority of the Bible. I believe in Jesus. I follow. I've accepted Jesus. I meet all of the. I would meet any of your theological criteria, and yet, I vote slightly differently than you, or I'm black, or I'm a woman who wants to take a leadership role. And part of the story I'm t- I tell is that when that happened, those folks got marginalized and defined out of the category, even if they could meet all of the theological criteria. And that, those junctures are where I end up saying that this is an interesting thing around evangelical identity formation because you get people who would say, I, yes, I am, and I meet I, the Bebbington quadrilateral or whatever, yes, I agree with all pieces of those. And yet that wasn't enough for evangelical leaders right. to accept me as a part of the religious community. So you get this like boundary... Drawing and redrawing uh, around controversial issues, politics, race, sex, gender, any of the fun stuff. Uh, So that in part is the um, really does get at the heart of the argument. It may be theological at times. You know, there is that piece that it is, you know, folks um, in, in evangelical institutions are sometimes required to sign statements of faith or whatever. And those may be primarily theological. But some of the and I do talk about some of that, some of that story. Um, some of the interesting places to me are where um, even even at the times where it is supposedly theological, and I don't you know it may be in part theological is it is at least also about power is right. is, is kind of one of my uh, driving points.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, and the this specific conversation about I, identity within evangelicalism, I think, is also just a broader conversation of what happens with Christians. And you know, I get it all the time. You know, people are always con- constantly telling me, "You're not a Christian. You're not a Christian because you don't believe X, Y, and Z, or whatever." And how I nav- like how we navigate somebody that says, "Hey, I'm a Christian for X, Y, and Z reasons," but they say you have to believe X, Y, and Z other reasons to be a Christian. And how you navigate that is really, really interesting. And again, I think this is like a a certain uh, version, this evangelical identity formation is a certain version of that. Uh, but let's talk about uh, those other stories that you want to, that you talk about in the book. Uh, and, and I want to go through each one of these. So yeah, let's, let's yeah. talk just briefly a, a little bit about each one of these folks. Um, so... You, you Again, you divide the book by liberal evangelicals, black evangelicals, progressive evangelicals, feminist the- evangelicals, and gay evangelicals. So let's talk about the liberal ones first, uh, you know, those damn liberals. What's the story you want to tell about the liberal evangelicals?
1: Yeah, so this and, and you say those damn liberals and that you, you are naming something that that joke is naming something that is a part of the story that I'm telling there. And it is the, and it is this, it is that one of the primary evangelical identity formation, like uh, tools in the 20th century was to define evangelical as not liberal, Mm. right? Evangelical Christians are not liberal Christians. And the, and so what I argue in part is that the first move in The kind of institutionalization of 20th century evangelical identity is to draw a line between conservative, faithful evangelical Christians over here and those liberal apostates over there. Right. And it was in part around things like uh, the those liberal Christians over there believe that you can use critical methods to study the bible and those liberals over there believe that you may not need to read genesis as a literal scientific uh, account of a six-day creation and the early move in this institutionalization of evangelical identity is to say those people are not are not evangelical. And evangelical means this over here. Which, and, which is
0: whole it's hilarious because when the fundamentalist evangelical split happened, right? The evangelicals were considered the liberal ones. And now they're they're weaponizing that same accusation that they once received and now they're weaponizing that against others. So this
1: is the shifting thing, right? Where it's always the the case that it is in the 20th century context liberal became a bad word in evangelical circles. Almost universally so. So right. anytime one party could paint the other party as liberal. That was an incredibly effective rhetorical strategy. The interesting thing to me for that that chapter was that, and this is one of those discoveries that I made in the research that it was just like a, a, a fascinating piece because I had never seen it discussed in evangelical history books of evangelicalism at all. And it was the case that there were liberal Christians who would self-identify in some way as liberal, saying, "Yes, we are Christian, and we." Accept historical critical methods for studying the Bible, and we don't think that that, you know, challenges our faith. And we accept, you know, modern scientific methods and theory like dark theories of Darwinian evolution and so on, and that doesn't change that we're Christian. And also, there were some such uh, liberal Christian thinkers who held on to evangelical identity, saying essentially, uh, We believe we're faithful to the gospel. That, you know, you know, mm-hmm. t- kind of the original uh, etymological meaning of evangelical, meaning the good news that that just because we accept historical critical methods and Darwinian evolution, that doesn't mean that we're not faithful to the gospel of Jesus. And these folks are absolutely written out of evangelical history because of this, uh, you know, this idea that the line was over mainline liberals are over here and evangelicals are over here. And part of what that chapter is doing is uh, making this argument that it was messier for a, for a mm. period of time, that there were folks who were saying, you know, who weren't accepting that divide, who were saying, you don't get to, you don't get to define us out of this category uh, just because we, you know, accept historical critical methods to study the Bible. So that that chapter is one of the, like I said uh, to somebody the other day, any of the chapters has the potential to be the most controversial given <laughs> it matters what the context is. But this right. one definitely will uh, because it is in some ways playing a little bit with the kind of widely accepted history of 20th century Protestantism to um, say that it's actually – this like neat line between evangelicals over here and liberal mainliners over there was actually more complicated. It Mm -hmm. wasn't, it wasn't always so neat.
0: What's the, what's the story you want to talk about with uh, black evangelicals?
1: This one is interesting for a number of reasons. Um, One of which is to your point about theological definitions. Um, A thing that happens when people start writing about evangelical history is um, often that you get historians who say things like, um, historically, the independent black church traditions in this country have been, um, evangel- have been theologically evangelical by any definition. And the problem with that is that uh, looking at the 20th century context, which is what I was focusing on, you get black Christians who, who might fit that theological definition who never associate with that label. Why is that? Right. And one of the ways uh, of understanding why that is uh, in my in the story I'm telling is to look at black Christians who did identify with the evangelical label and there was a group of them and they, may, they diagnosed as far back as the 1960s that there was something about evangelical culture and evangelical identity and those who identify as evangelical in, in the circles that was uh, this cultural piece, right? That it was, not, you, you get um, suggestion. Well, let me zoom out a little bit to, say, uh, to talk a little bit about the folks. So the black evangelicals that I end up focusing on in that chapter Many of them were the uh, first black Christians admitted to white fundamentalist and evangelical schools. Mm. And they were, for many of them, that was a very lonely experience. And then they started meeting other black Christians who were the first admitted to white and evangelical schools. And they started conferring and they started realizing that there was a similarity to their experience, that they were in these places and they were being taught evangelical theology and actually, what they began to realize is that, that they were being taught white evangelical theology mm. because they uh, would say, Yes, we, we agree with these theological tenets. In fact, we identify with the evangelical label. And yet, that was not enough for some reason. And why might that be? And it, w- it happened for these folks around. They would, some of them would uh, say, uh, Yes, I meet all of your criteria. And yet, you you all constantly are poking me and prodding me about who i voted for or whether i support martin luther king and the civil rights movement and they would frame it like white evangelicals would frame it you know do you support those riots in the streets to these black evangelicals as like a test of faith such that uh even though they agreed with the theological tenets and even identified with the label that wasn't enough so you get Somebody like uh, Bill Pinnell, who writes this book all the way back in uh, the 60s called My Friend, the Enemy. And it's about white evangelicals are his friend, the enemy, because it's this experience for him of working in evangelical circles and realizing uh, that the culture was just absolutely riddled with racism and experiencing that firsthand. So he writes this book in the 60s that... um, that chapter is one of my favorites for a number of reasons. And this is one of them that it prefigures, you know, there's these debates currently about evangelicals and race that are happening right now. And this stuff goes all the way back to the 1960s right. where you have black Christians who were making the same point. And part of the argument is that the, the, nobody really listened to them
0: mm.
1: or mm. they were, you know, kind of written out of the history.
0: What about the progressive evangelicals? And, and I find that interesting that you do make that distinction between liberal and progressive. What, what's that distinction there that you're making?
1: It's, an, it's it actually for uh, many of the folks who are featured in that chapter, it would be an important distinction for them because that chapter is in part a history of the so-called evangelical left, which uh, was a movement predated in some ways the rise of the religious right um you had this like burgeoning growing uh, coalition of evangelicals with progressive politics before even the religious right like explodes onto the scene and for many of those folks who would be the progressive evangelical leaders it was very important to them to stress that they were theologically evangelical And Mm -hmm. even use some in even some using like language of theological conservatism, saying we are theologically conservative. We love the Bible. And because we love the Bible and take it very seriously, we think that there are times you must not vote Republican. And that was very, very closely aligned for them with their evangelical identity. Right. You get this is uh Jim Wallace is a is a fairly famous. Yeah, Ron, Ron
0: Snyder. I, I guess I never thought about it that way, but they really did come at the same time that the religious right was on its rise. And it's really interesting to think that they were coming on the scene at the same exact time. So there was like these two largely vocal camps uh that were rising in evangelicalism. That is I've never really put that together. That's really interesting.
1: It's a wild thing, right? So folks folks generally know the names like Jim Wallace and Ron Sider, um, but less known is the the kind of history of their early work and their activism. And in that chapter, I draw on and um, am very thankful for earlier work by folks like Brantley Gasway, David Swartz, who have written these fantastic histories of the evangelical left. Um, I take a slightly different interpretive track for what happens to the evangelical left than they do, but their work is indispensable. And yes, to your point, it is the case that a lot of folks who would know the name Jim Wallace or Ron Sider are unaware that there was this movement of progressive evangelicals that was spreading and taking root, and it was predicated explicitly on we are not liberal mainline Christians. We are... Classically evangelical by theological definition, we just think that we you should support progressive political positions because that's more in line with the teachings of Jesus and with the you know with somebody like Ron Sider with the Bible's focus on uh, wealth and poverty. The, their biographical stories are uh, fascinating in that uh, um, Jim Wallace recounts um, how. In the evangelical culture of the day that he experienced uh, in his evangelical world growing up, he ran into the racism issue and that turned him off to evangelical faith. And yet before he decided to just do away with the whole thing, he, he gave the Bible one more chance, you know, sat down, read it through. And when he did, he said, you know, this is part of his like self-narration and several of the folks uh, of the evangelical left, uh, the way they self-narrate their story, they say, "I looked at the Bible again, and it radicalized me. Mm-hmm. I, when I read it for myself, I realized that the evangelical preaching and teaching I had been given uh, was actually not in line with the, you know, canonical emphases. Right, emphasizing certain things over others. When, if you look at the text, it seems like we should care about the poor." And this translated for uh, even the, this movement of progressive evangelicals into advocacy, anti-poverty advocacy, anti-racism advocacy, and anti-religious right. Um, unfortunately, what, for the, these folks, what happened, uh, I argue, is the religious right came on the scene and just steamrolled and destroyed all other options in evangelical spaces such that it became the only game in town part of the different kind of trajectory i take on telling that story is emphasizing that one of the effective ways that the religious right did that was by the kind of move you were talking about you know folks coming up to you and saying you're not you know xyz because xyz you're not really a christian right religious right leaders did this to progressive evangelical Mm -hmm. leaders and they did it incredibly effectively right you get Jerry Falwell in front of a camera saying Jim Wallace is not really an evangelical obviously you know there's a direct quote from Jerry Falwell Jim Wallace is about it is an evangelical as an oak tree and every time his like his diagnosis is based on politics right so you get another right. interview with Jerry Falwell where he he asks Jim Wallace did you vote for who did you vote for in these elections did you vote for Reagan did you vote for Bush and then he he the turn is well, see, you're obviously not an evangelical. And so this is,
0: yeah. I want to bookmark that for the next question, because that's literally right in line of where I'm going to go. But I do want also to hear the story about the feminist and gay Christians too, yeah. um, because obviously they have this story or they're a part of this story as well. And it's incredibly important. Can you talk about just again, like who, what's the story you want to tell about the feminist Christians or the feminist evangelicals?
1: Yeah, the the that chapter is um has I think a lot of resonance for a lot of current debates among evangelical circles, including um stuff in part inspired by Kristen Dumais' uh book that is re-enlivened debates over gender roles and masculinity and chauvinism and mm-hmm. misogyny in evangelical circles. And she does, you know, she made this incredible intervention that lays this thing out and says, "Look, this uh, evangelical identity was it, it, driven by this ma- like manly man kind of thing and this theology of tough guy, masculinist theology." And part of what my that chapter, of the evangelical feminist story, is doing is telling the the underside of how that happened, such that much like the evangelical left, a lot of folks don't realize there was a. A growing feminist movement in evangelical circles, through especially the, within
0: the Southern Baptist Convention.
1: There were right. This is, yes, there's layers and layers to this, but there were feminists and or egalitarians because sometimes, like liberal feminists, became a bad word in evangelical right. circles. So sometimes folks would frame themselves as egalitarians rather than feminists. But the the point stands. Much like the the black evangelicals story or and similar in some ways to the progressive evangelical story you get these evangelical feminists who say yes we believe in the authority of the bible we just interpret those past, those two or three passages in paul about female submission and male authority slightly differently than you and think. we want to
0: wear yoga pants
1: or right or or preach or or whatever or support the era equal rights amendment you know and they say to the powers that be we believe actually, again, the witness of the Bible uh, affirms the full equality of women, and you know, citing things like Jesus having female followers. And this presented an interesting tension in the evangelical world of whether people with two rad, where groups with two radically different interpretations of an issue like this could coexist. Mm. And part of what happens uh, to the evangelical feminists, I argue was the uh, rise of complementarianism. The interesting thing about that, because that debate is very live again right now, is that a lot of folks also probably don't realize is the complementarian movement is very recent. And that's not even, I'm not even making some kind of wild interpretive claim there. The folks who were behind that movement were very, they admit that they invented complementarianism in the late 80s as specifically an effort to eradicate evangelical feminism. Mm. The entire movement was predicated on the idea that they believed that feminist ideas were spreading among evangelicals and that that was very dangerous and they had to do something to stop it. And it really worked. It really did. Such that in current debates about this stuff, um, the fact that there was a whole generation of evangelical feminists is pretty much totally forgotten.
0: I actually have a personal story to that. So I work for an institution called United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, and our president is Dr. Molly Marshall, and she was one of the first women that actually got ordained by the Southern Baptist Convention when the Southern Baptist Convention did open that up, and then obviously not too long later... The whole rise of the complementarian side of the Southern Baptist Convention gained a lot of power and then they rescind, right, that decision to allow women to get ordained Uh, and so it's just really interesting to see how she was a major factor in that uh, feminist movement specifically within the Southern Baptist Convention, which is hard to believe that it wasn't that long ago that there was a feminist movement within the Southern Baptist Convention and uh, this person who I work with every day, who is my president, is... uh, was one of the major players in that? Uh,
1: yeah, yes, yes. And I, uh, um, know lots of folks who, uh, know, uh, am, am, one, uh, degree of separation removed from Molly Marshall in many, many ways, uh, that I had, I have known several of my friends and colleagues and professors and mentors over the years. Uh, she was an important figure for them. Uh, mm-hmm. that is probably a, podcast discussion for another day because the southern (laughs) baptist convention is its own story right in all of this puzzle that i didn't touch too much on in the book but yes this is the um it was the case that until fairly recently there were significant pockets in the evangelical world of uh folks who were explicitly either egalitarian or admittedly feminist and the complementarian stuff the rise of folks like wayne grudem john piper that whole thing pushed that down the memory hole and it worked their backlash was incredibly effective and the whole complementarian he man she woman bible gender role thing became like it spread like wildfire in evangelical circles and Feminists got marginalized, mm-hmm. uh, and that is, you know, when we're back here in these uh, debates and discussions today, it's uh, it's interesting to see, you know, the ways in which it's just picking up on uh, previous debates uh, that have been kind of completely forgotten.
0: Let's talk about now the gay evangelicals, which probably feels like almost like the the least likely out of all of these, uh, Some for some reason, just especially with like how much— anti LGBTq movement there is especially over the last like 20 years in evangelicalism it feels like there's just no way there has been a e- gay evangelical but they have a story in this and so I'd love to hear a little bit more about their story uh, and who, who who's the I'm trying to for, I'm forgetting who is that huge early CCM artist who everybody like knew there was like a recent like documentary about this guy. Yeah, Why am my blanket on his, name? but he, but he was gay, and yeah. I think like openly gay, right? Yeah, no, there was there was um
1: there's several instances of that even in the in the um 20th century evangelical world, and the ones that we end up thinking about are sometimes the high profile you know artists like Christian music artists coming out, and it does though relate to you know the the unlikeliness of it when you were talking about that does relate to the the previous the discussion we were just having about the complementarian stuff, because that rise of the gender role, you know, strict gender binary stuff um, and becoming widespread in evangelicalism went hand in hand with anti-gay animus. Right. It is a fascinating chapter for a number of reasons, one of which is what was interesting to me was that there were folks going back into the 70s and 80s who were explicitly evangelical, who were saying, who were exploring the, the homosexuality question. And I put it in scare quotes because it, that, that's how it was framed at the time. And right. always, You know, we're talking about homosexuality. And the interesting thing about that story is that for a time you see, it seems to me, this kind of negotiation among evangelical circles about what is going to be the evangelical response to homosexuality. At times, it's this kind of like, well, gay rights, homosexuality is the worldly, like that's you know, that's obviously a sign that we're the the culture is going to hell. The problem with like that, the holding it at arm's length thing, is that uh, there's several, but in the kind of trajectory of the story I try to tell, the problem is that there that that didn't prohibit you know, gay kids growing up in evangelical churches so that then if it now is not something that is just happening out there and it turns out there are gay Christians in the pews what are you know the evangelical leaders uh, what are we going to say to them the int- one of the most interesting things about that chapter to me is and it also ties to some current debates in evangelicalism you see this move by the quote unquote moderate evangelical leaders to say Folks like Jerry Falwell who say gays are going to hell. They deserve to go to hell. You know, this is that kind of rhetoric. You get this move by, quote unquote, more moderate evangelical leaders to say, we can't react like that. That's not good. That's not loving. What can we do that is loving? Well, we cannot affirm this lifestyle. So what are we going to do? And part of the story I end up telling is that the. the is how it is that the ex-gay movement became the, like, mainstream evangelical answer as, like, this is mm. a way we we as moderate evangelicals can minister to gay people is by helping them change. Now, mm. the interesting part of that trajectory, there's many interesting parts of that trajectory, but one of which is that the whole thing kind of fell apart. The ex-gay right. movement, um, not that, it, that some of that ideology is not still out there, but it over time, the open secret was that these folks were not changing their sexual orientation and such that even now you have, they
0: they ended up partnering together. Like that's what happened. (laughs) And,
1: and you get, um, so some of those folks, um, some of those folks who would have come out of the ex gay movement, such that they were ex ex gay, are, I tell us a little bit of some of their stories in that Mm. chapter as as gay evangelicals, right? Who then were ex gay evangelicals, who then became ex ex gay evangelicals because they realized that this like conversion therapy thing wasn't really working. Um, the interesting thing about the fall of the ex gay movement is that that open secret increasingly became more, less of a secret and more out in the open. And then you get acknowledgement from even somebody like Russell Moore, who would meet any of the conservative criteria saying, yeah the x game this reparative therapy changing orientation thing doesn't really show any like indication that this actually works and acknowledging right. that and the other interesting piece of that chapter though is is to emphasize that there were people going back to the uh, 70s um including folks like Ralph Blair and Virginia Molenkott who were beginning to make arguments that yes we are we are christian and we are evangelical christians that is our tradition and our community and we uh, agree by We agree to X, Y, Z theological points. We just don't believe that those six, you know, whatever passages have any bearing on lifelong monogamous same sex relationships and making the argument that that one interpretive difference should not be enough to disqualify them from Mm. being called evangelical. Now, that argument absolutely was one that was uh, targeted by
0: folks who would say, well, you know, that got steamrolled pretty easily. 100%.
1: 100%. And an interesting phenomenon, though, with that is much like all these other debates that we've talked a little bit about, um, you get a kind of resurgence of that debate in the last decade with folks like Matthew Vines or right. Justin Lee or David Gushy, uh, are, who, who are making similar kinds of arguments around um, Christians should be able to support same gender loving relationships. Uh, and the thing that happened to all those folks. Uh, is what happened to each of these previous versions of evangel- uh, other evangelicals? They uh, were targeted, and the arguments were explicitly made that they that obviously these aren't real evangelicals.
0: Which again goes to show, like the identifier among evangelical leaders. Again, it doesn't seem like it's all that particularly theological in a lot of ways because what they think is theological is changing, right? complementarianism used to not exist. And then in the 90s, it does. And now that becomes, if you're not a complementarian, you are not an evangelical. But that didn't exist in evangelical history prior to that. So there's this changing that happens. And so it really is, again, like you mentioned before, it's a power play. It's whatever we can do to have power. And so if that means our theology, culture, whatever needs to change in order for us to have power, that's what's going to be the case. And so they ultimately are the ones that seem to uh, be the gatekeepers of what is, what's evangelical and what's not. Um, but it's very amorphous. It's very subjective uh, about what actually, for them, what they even consider to be evangelical. It's just about what they think, what's going to keep them in power.
1: Some and and one of the way one of the kind of inherent things that makes that possible in specifically in the evangelical world is that the evangelicalism is not a denomination. It doesn't Mm. have an official hierarchy and or official creeds. So it requires this kind of posturing uh, around even theological positions uh, because there is no universally agreed upon set of criteria right or membership roles now there are institutions that try to institute that or that you know that kind of plant their flag as if you're a member of this institution you're an evangelical theologian or whatever but all of all of that trajectory though consistently had this problem where it was very consistently a kind of minimal consensus theologically like inerrancy anybody who agrees in the inerrancy this was regularly one of the you know, litmus test. If you right. can affirm inerrancy, you're an evangelical. But then the problem always came up about interpretation. That's what do you do with two evangelicals who say yes, we agree in the authority with the authority of the Bible, and we are participants in this community, and we reach radically different conclusions about the implications of an inerrant Bible, or about this passage, or about that passage, or about whether calvinism free will open theism right right? these debates happen even in and some of that in the dissertation i had some of this that got cut out of the book that was specifically around evangelical debates about open theism calvinism that kind of stuff because the same phenomenon happened there where it would be the case that you would have people who say yes i agree with the authority of the bible and i meet all of these theological criteria and yet i disagree about the way that god works in the world in terms of you know predestination or planning or foreknowledge right and that presents a tension where all of a sudden you have this religious community with people with pretty profoundly different like like a pluralism of evangelical ideas and evangelical leaders were very or 20th century evangelical gatekeepers those who position themselves as gatekeepers were uncomfortable with that pluralism right Mm -hmm. and so often you get uh It becomes a power move where those in power get to um, set the terms of uh, what counts as an officially sanctioned evangelical interpretation. And the culture making Mm -hmm. thing is a fascinating piece of it because you can see the way it functions where um, somebody will advocate a different interpretation and their book is pulled off the shelf and they don't get sold anymore. Or a CCM artist, right, makes one, one claim, their CDs are gone. Life doesn't sell them anymore. Right. And part of the whole argument of the book is that that kind of thing has been profound, has had a profound impact on what it means to be a capital E official evangelical.
0: This episode of A People's Theology is brought to you by United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. Are you considering exploring your faith more deeply, or are you called to ministry but haven't found a seminary that is quite right for you? When you come to United, you join a community that is intentionally open, socially aware, and theologically adventurous. United's passion is equipping leaders to make real, lasting change in the world through their many different degree programs, whether your vocation is in faith leadership, nonprofit leadership, academia, the arts, activism, or social entrepreneurship. And the best news is you don't have to uproot your life to attend seminary. United offers maximum flexibility to fit your schedule. Attend on campus or online, part-time or full-time. Their leading distance learning technology allows students to be active in the classroom and engaged with the United community. Want to learn more? Visit unitedseminary.edu forward slash or click the link in the episode description and receive a $1,000 scholarship when you apply and are admitted. United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, training leaders to dismantle systems of oppression, care for the spiritual needs of a multi-faith world, and push the boundaries of theology. It feels like it all came to a head with the 2016 election and Trump. Like, it really feels like all of the history of evangelicalism was just heading to that point, right? And so all of these things that we're talking about just come to a head at this moment can you talk a little bit about how Trump's election, either like highlights or magnifies what it means to be an evangelical, and what that means maybe going forward for people who identify as evangelical? Um, because one of my like sort of theories, essentially, is that evangelicalism, especially over the last twenty years, I would say even more closer to ten years there used to be a cultural element to it, right? To be evangelical meant that you weren't listening to Blake 182, you were listening to Reliant K. Instead of watching Barney, you were watching VeggieTales, right? There was this cultural element to it, and we've talked about that before. But then all of a sudden, you get this guy who basically now is the new evangelical leader who never went red Wild at heart. He, does, he, didn't, he clearly did not do any purity culture. He was not saving himself for marriage, right? And all of a sudden now, he's the key evangelical in the country. And and so it seems like all the cultural pieces to what made us evangelical went to the wayside just for power. So I'm curious like how that change of how evangelicals even understood themselves and what was changing in evangelicalism. It all culminated with Trump with that. And so and it seems like moving forward now like there's a reason why we don't really see the cultural artifacts that used to exist in evangelicalism like it did. I mean, we still have CCM for the most part, but we don't. The, the Christian music festivals, almost all of them are gone. VeggieTales is not even like a Christian media company anymore, <laughs> right? Like, there are, I guess, like large Christian books being sold yeah, right, or, right. or, you know, evangelical books, but a lot of like the cultural pieces that I grew up with no longer exist. So what does it mean to be an evangelical moving forward, especially post-2016?
1: Yeah, that's interesting. And I I hadn't really thought about the kind of like fracturing of the coherence of of that particular aspect of the culture, actually. So that's a really interesting point and insight you make that that this. Yeah, I want to think about that. Yeah, like I, I,
0: I think about like who the average youth group kid right now yeah, in a big yeah, evangelical megachurch, yeah. like when I was growing up, right. it meant that you were listening to tooth and nail artists, right, that right. you grew up listening to Veggie Tales, right? Like there was a whole culture. You would go to all the big youth conferences, yeah. Dare to passion, Share and Acquire passion, the Fire. Yeah, yeah. The, those were the pieces to being evangelical as a youth group kid. What is that for a kid now? Like yeah. you listen to Lauren Daigle, maybe like that, like that's maybe it. Like yeah. I just don't I don't know what it means for a an average youth group kid to be evangelical and I think that is just a microcosm of the larger culture of things have changed dramatically. Yeah. And so is it really just that you vote Republican? It, like is that what it means now moving forward from 2016?
1: Yeah, so this is the this is the interesting thing around the 2016 election um in particular as a kind of watershed. And there's no there is no, you know, uh, some people are getting hung, uh, hung up and debating like, oh, we got to stop focusing on 2016. But there's no avoiding that this was a watershed moment in American culture and politics and particularly in terms of Christian and evangelical culture. But this by 2006, there's a few ways, I think, to think about it. And one of the interesting things that I do in the conclusion is talk about this question of the 81 percent, right, the 81 mm-hmm. percent of evangelicals. In some ways, the evangelical vote for Trump, based on the story I was telling, is not surprising. By 2016, evangelicals are the evangelical those who would identify as evangelical by the you know pollsters metric or how sociologists cut that pie have been the most consistent uh, Republican voting block for many elections. Yes. So the fact that, as particularly in the presidential election. So, when you get time for the final, you know, the down to the wire of two candidates, and one is Republican and one is a Democrat, in some ways it's not surprising that those who would self identify as evangelical voted Republican. And yet, you do get this before and after and in the lead up thing that is happening among evangelical leaders and self identified evangelicals and younger evangelicals and evangelicals of color, where the recognition and your point about the 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 cultural artifacts is so huge here and I, I hadn't thought about trump particularly in this way he is not just a theological outsider he's a cultural outsider Correct. to all this is not somebody who can talk the idiomatic talk right uh, in a way that communicates to evangelical christians that he's one of them which would, which would be a slightly different strategy, you know, politically than somebody like um, w, George W. Bush, who, right, who, totally. had an, who had an affect and a way of speaking that said that evangelicals could hear and say, yes, he sounds like me um, in, in some capacity, like whatever the you know, idiomatic tags are. So this is an interesting thing. And you get these dividing lines um, between evangelical leaders who are debating and lead up to Trump, like whether they can support him or not, and some start in one camp and then end up in another camp i think part of what was happening was as simple as evangelical identity became by by the 21st century very closely aligned with republican politics and the the it's the story i tell in the progressive evangelical chapter in some ways such that where there while there might still have continued to be some diversity of evangelical political opinion to be a Democrat and an evangelical by the time you get to the 21st century made you suspect. Right. Right. It just did. And that's not to say that there weren't, you know, Ron Sider still till the end of his days was always identified as evangelical as far as I know and advocated progressive politics. And yet he never could escape people like the, those in the evangelical culture who, who said that made his faith suspect. So when you get to in some ways, right, like that's the simple answer to evangelicals were going to vote Republican because that's how this story has happened. It was not always the case that evangelical meant essentially a Protestant Christian who votes Republican. But an argument can be made that that is what that is the meaning and if not meaning, at least strong connotation of this label and identity post 2016, you know, one. And fascinating, and I had this discussion with somebody else the other day, you see this wild phenomenon where you get people who are Catholic or Muslim identifying as evangelical now. Mm -hmm. And I think part of what is going on there is the story I'm telling, which is evangelical identity became associated with a kind of identity politics. And often it was a white identity politics, and it meant things like we are conservative Christians who want to protect the family. Right. Anti-abortion, anti-feminism, pro-free market, anti-socialism, anti-communism. Right. And that identity, Christian is a piece of it, but um, one can make the argument that the stronger piece is these political, social artifacts and and, uh, um, political positions. And an argument can be made that the political platform is one of the strongest kind of glue that holds evangelical identity together and so when trump comes along he just points out some of the fissures there right Right. where it's like oh hold on there are some uh, evangelical leaders who made these arguments about the personal moral the importance of personal morality for their religious leaders now you have this guy right in the in the wake of trump it is uh it's an interesting time right? right in in for the future of evangelicalism because there's it revealed some fault lines uh, that may have been there all along and maybe was a strong indicator of what this thing
0: actually has become. Right. It, it, it's just fascinating to me that for the last 50 years, evangelicals have been building these institutions— Whether it's um, educational institutions, cultural media institutions, they've built up all these institutions for 50 years, and now we get to a point now where to be evangelical doesn't mean that you have to participate in those institutions anymore. Now, evangelicalism has always, at least in the last 50 years, there's been a, obviously a majority of them where it meant to be conservative theologically and politically, right? right? But it also meant participating in the institutions they were creating, but you no longer have to participate in those institutions. In fact, some of those institutions don't exist anymore. Yeah. And so that's where it's just like, what is going to happen in the future of evangelicalism identity, given the fact that their institutions that they've spent millions and billions of dollars building for the last 50 years don't matter anymore.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder there and now we're really getting to some fun theorizing and we can we can do this together. Um, I wonder there if some of that is Internet, right? The If some mm-hmm. of the rise of access via the Internet to and not pure, you know, not purely. I mean, you we know, don't just totally uh, you can't just blame Internet for everything, but it's for a long time that cohesion of the evangelical culture you go to the conference you listen to the music or whatever you in some ways folks don't need that as much to feel like they are participating in some kind of culture you know some Mm -hmm. kind of niche cultural thing uh in part because of you know online stuff right because what you're talking about a lot of this was um strongly driven by physical like you buy the cd you buy the cds at the evangel at the christian bookstore you go to the youth group you go to pat you make your pilgrimage to the passion conference in atlanta and it has this um so i i i would suspect that one can make an argument that some of the shifting nature of culture formation in the modern u.s context would be at play in the evangelical world, but I think it's I think you're on to something here. Where I think it's more than that with the evangelical world. Yeah, what the future looks like for it is interesting because there's like lots of these folks are you know making the prognostications about what it, evangelical identity and stuff looks like moving ahead, and the and a really interesting thing, at least as far as I've seen some of the sociological data, and I talk about the interesting debates among sociologists about how to define evangelical, but. From what I've seen, there's not like a dip in people identifying as evangelical post-Trump. In fact, it's holding steady or slightly increasing in, in maybe in some numbers. And that's a fascinating thing. But to your point about the participation, I think one of the indicators, at least based on the sociological data I've uh, you know, just kind of seen from a distance is that there are folks that so the, so the self-identified evangelicals include lots of people who never attend church. That would be a strong indication of the point that you're making, where these people at least consider themselves evangelicals and are not in those youth groups and are not buying CCM, or maybe they are buying C. You know, listening to Lauren Daigle on Spotify or whatever. But
0: and if that continues to grow, at some point, then we just need to recognize the fact that maybe to be evangelical is it's a political identifier, specifically maybe a power identifier. It's just simply. What is going to give you access to more power, or more at least more political power? And it seems like that might be like the trend that we're heading towards. It seems like that, especially as evangelical institutions clearly are not a part of evangelical identity anymore.
1: Right, right, and it's that 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 interesting evolution is, yeah. I'll be thinking about this a lot now. The um, another angle, and I didn't do too much with this in the book, but some folks have started writing about this. A strong argument can be made that evangelical became like a like a consumer culture such that mm. it is, you know, if you can get that state, if you can get into the networks of the things that are sold to evangelical Christians, there is an identity being sold. Right. I think that this, you know, the uh, and it would have to do with the idioms. Right. The uh, like the cutesy little an, an aesthetic. You can make an argument that there is an evangelical aesthetic. Right. And oh, yeah. And how that will change given the realities you're talking about participation in institutions or not is a really fascinating, um, and the internet I'm assuming plays a role there where, you know, the proliferation of, of an evangelical aesthetic. Uh, I mean, I think I'm thinking like the, um, who the chip, chip and Joanna, the, what is their, their, their thing, the gains, the people, the fixer upper thing in Waco, Texas.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I, I, for, I, I, forget what that, sh- I, I know what you're talking about, you know but it's just like, you know, that. the, the, like the, you know, the, the good looking guy with the undercut and the, yeah, like that is, that is so, so a part of what it means to be, or at least at one point seemed to be evangelical, you know?
1: Yeah. And I think that, that the, there is an argument to be made for some of that, that the internet is definitely changing that in that. Mega church culture was always a piece of this puzzle, but it feels like now it's even more so such that you have a few culture making institutions, like maybe, maybe fewer than there used to be, but they're more influential perhaps, right? Like, Mm -hmm. um, I, there was just a recent something, somebody published a study about, it's like four outfits that make all of the worship music that evangelicals are singing now, right? So it's like maybe Bethel, it's a,
0: Hillsong, and whatever other ones. But yeah, that's about it. And and
1: some of that is marketing. Those are institutions that are incredibly effective, you know, are incredibly effective marketing their product uh, and getting it out there. And they are, you know, to, to take slightly devil's advocate on your argument, the evangelical culture making is still happening. It's just happening in slightly different ways. And with maybe different players and maybe there are fewer players and maybe it is, you know, now if you listen to Bethel and whatever that that is, you know, I don't know. I'm this is just like theorizing at this point because this is such a fascinating question. Well, so
0: here's my here's my like sort of counter argument, at least to that in particular, is that evangelicals for a number of years created a counterculture of their own music, their own media. Right. What they're doing now is they're taking the mainstream media and trying to convert them. That's why you see Justin Bieber, Kanye West, Chris Pratt. Yeah, they're yeah. taking mainstream culture and bringing it into theirs and trying to convert them to theirs. Yeah. Interesting. Right. And so it's not that they're creating their, their alternative culture. They are simply just trying to convert mainstream culture.
1: Interesting. Interesting. Cause that, you know, that tension is always there too, though, in, in evangelicalism of the like, those who take the more we got to convert the world approach and or developing the, the counterculture. And to your point about the, the formation of a counterculture, that absolutely was that absolutely 100 percent was the case. And right. and that element of the like baptizing of what, a, you know, metaphorically or literally baptizing other outsider cultural artifacts is an inter- that's an interesting thing yeah
0: and i it, uh, maybe it's uh, more so that the degree yeah, to which the the amount of resources are going into one yeah. or the other right yeah. it, at one point it seemed like evangelicals for the most part were putting as much resources into creating a cult- counterculture alternative culture rather than trying to baptize or convert the mainstream culture whereas now it yeah. seems like because so much of those countercultural institutions have been abandoned or have completely gone in decline, that they now are putting more resources into uh, the baptizing or conversion of mainstream culture.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And there is, I, th- there's, there's, I think there is something to that. And I think that there's a, um, a way that you can make that argument related to like the gender role stuff, right? Or the mm. Mars Hill phenomenon, right? That was Mars Hill's whole thing was like, we, we're going to be the cool, like we are going to, uh, we are countercultural in a certain way, and that element is always there right positioning against those you know liberal liberal commies soy boys whatever we're right. going to we're going to have an alternative culture thing but it's it makes for interesting allegiances where and i think the internet definitely has played a role here where you see very fascinating bedfellows developing these days where Jordan
0: Peterson Andrew Tate right like that, is, that's what yeah. is so interesting is Again, like at one point you had to be an evangelical to be influential in evangelicalism. Right. And now that seems to, for the most part, be changing pretty dramatically.
1: Yeah. And so there is the, you know, so if you uh, a beginning theory here is like, OK, let's scratch down to the surface and have some understanding of why that is. and I think some of it would relate to the story I'm trying to tell. Right. Jordan Peterson is making is saying things that make uh, the folks who believe a certain kind of gender ideology. Feel like the, this is a, you know, another somebody who affirms their uh, gender ideology, right? right? So, an argument I have made the argument before that almost the foremost controlling project of evangelical theology in the 20th, late 20th, and early 21st century is this defense of complementarianism, right? Such that to do evangelical theology is to be prepared to defend a gender ideology right. uh, in theological terms. So you get interesting bedfellows, right? And you know that that somebody who's a uh, Jordan Peterson who uh, says men should be X Y Z and women should do A B C uh, becomes a guru in evangelical circles, which is a fast. It is a fascinating thing, and I think you maybe your your theoretical piece about this culture, um, this shifting of the cultural formation, is is maybe onto something. This is right. a fa- this is fascinating thing to watch and people should be, I mean, you know, I beat this drum all the time. People should be paying attention to this because it's the spread of a lot of this connects to uh, spread of far-right ideas. Um, Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, that's why I'm like so fascinated by this because it really does, and I think we should be really concerned about it is because the fact that we're we're seeing evangelicalism and its identity change so much, I think has massive implications of the kind of power it has politically and therefore could end up in policies that really end up destroying a lot of this world. Like, that's why I'm so concerned about it. Like, I just am like... This is this is really scary to me. No, Uh, this is right. Yeah. Like Trump is a culmination, but I think what's happening, I think Trump is a microcosm of what really is happening. And that is evangelical identity is changing. And I think not in a way that's going to be really helpful at all to a world that's already plagued by climate change and white supremacy and so on and so forth.
1: I think that there's certainly something to that. And I think that uh, I do, I talk a bit about, you know, kind of what's next for evangelicalism in the conclusion. I don't make too many prognostications except that um, I think in the very last little bit, I go for a, if I had to predict, I would not predict that evangelical identity is going to change in a certain kind of way. And that, and the way that I'm describing is, that, it, that there is going to be room for reform of certain tendencies and or an opening of the tent where all of a sudden those who would say I am gay and evangelical or I'm feminist and evangelical are going to be able to make space in that world. Because mm-hmm. generationally, there is this, you know, there is some of that, I think, that is happening. It's not purely generational, but there is a bit where a generation of kids who is raised evangelical sees what has happened in the past 10 years and says, you taught me X, Y, Z, this culture shaped me in a certain way. I thought character matters, but now it seems like, you know, this is that only power matters. And I, you know, don't know how I feel about Christianity, but I definitely don't like misogyny and racism and this kind of stuff. And those folks, the, the, like in the conclusion, what I end up saying, I think is that it's not a really cheery outlook, but my, my view is that those folks, the folks who would, feel that way and might want to stay and try to reform evangelicalism from the inside are probably not going to be successful because evangelical leadership are doubling down right now on everything I just talked about the stories yes. that 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 is there is recognition that younger evangelicals are rejecting some of this stuff and the response from many at the top is to double down on this stuff yes
0: um, yes yeah, absolutely. I, I, I totally agree. And I was going to bring that up. Of I don't remember the exact figure, but I think David Gushy has brought this up before of like something like 25 million people have left evangelicalism over the last like I don't know how many years, uh, but like an absurd number, right? And even the Southern Baptist Convention has like consistently over the last number of years, lost a million members each year. Uh, And so there clearly is this mass exodus. Have we seen something like this in evangelicalism before where there are so many people leaving? um, And and I just find that really interesting, obviously. And that's part of my story, right? Like I'm one of those people. And I would say probably most of my listeners are one of those people and we we now even see a, like an entire movement. It's not just like a bunch of people leaving. There's a, an entire kind of cohesive movement happening, the ex-evangelical, ex-evangelical yeah. movement. And right. ha, has something like that ever happened before?
1: So the, the, the there's so many, we could talk about this for hours and hours because there's so many interesting angles to this. And the, I think that that Exodus piece is there. And yet also that the interesting thing is it will probably take a while to see what that means for a few reasons. And and one of which is it depends on how you slice it. Right. Because to the, to the other point that I was making earlier, some sociological data seems to indicate that evangelical numbers are holding at least steady. So if there are those who are leaving, there are new, just as many coming in. Yeah. 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 Now yeah. those are, those in they're probably not the same kinds of folks. So that has implications, but this, this question of, Um, in some way this question of like the precedent right in some ways the stories I'm telling some of the folks of the stories I tell in the book ended up being ex-evangelical before long you know decades ago right some got pushed out some decided to voluntarily leave but this like official movement kind of thing of like a of a yes we are there is many of we are legion and we are leaving because xyz at least in the 20th century context of U.S. evangelicalism, not really that I'm aware of. It was a story, a lot of story of kind of like evangelicalism became the hot thing where all like, you know, by the seventies and eighties, everybody's like, Oh yeah. Evangelicals are everywhere. Now that is an interesting story to me because I it's, you know, where did those people come from? And so I also make a bit of an argument that this evangelical identity thing was an invention and it was a really effective invention because a lot of people who would have, you know, maybe before been like, I'm Lutheran or I'm Southern Baptist now are like, I'm evangelical. And it was a really effective thing that like united various Christians from various denominations in this kind of culture making project. So, yeah, the, I, I, I don't think that there is um, in, in that particular story. I don't know that there is um, precedent for like a mass exodus. And yeah, I think it remains to be seen what is is happening with evangelicals and ex-evangelicals and ex, you know, post-evangelicals, and uh, because it's we are at an interesting cultural moment with it, where there is no question it's changing, and it's going to be fascinating to see what happens. Right.
0: Right. Yeah, I mean, if, if there's anything that gives an indication of i think what's going to happen to these folks that just like i like i feel like i'm at the margins of evangelicalism like you talk about in all these different stories of folks is yeah like at the end of the day they have not been successful at reform right there there's just very few Uh, folks that have been able to be in any way, shape, or form successful in reforming. And so if history is any indication, I don't think, yeah, I think you're right. I don't think moving forward, we're going to see really any successful reform of this tradition, uh, which... Part of me is like really mourns that because of how much evangelicalism formed me as a child. But part of me is just like, I, I don't know what there is to reform at this point anymore. Like there's clearly it's never been successful. Um, and even like the closest things that we've seen, like the emergent church movement movement being like one of the closer things that we saw of maybe something really gonna about to happen. And then that gets squashed down too. Yeah, so it's just like yeah, yeah. it's just really. Disheartening and frustrating, and also at the same time, I think at some point we just kind of have to swallow the pill of this might not be a reformable tradition. Um, and so, yeah, I think you're, I think you're onto it.
1: To your point, there could have been a chapter about the the emergent church as other evangelicals as a you know a movement for certain kinds of philosophical and or liturgical reform to evangelicalism that became a hot thing that everybody was talking about for a moment and then nobody really talks about it anymore. Uh, Mm -hmm. well, I will,
0: I, I, I'm actually still part of an emergent church. And so I will gladly talk about, I am so fascinated by it. And also I realize most people are probably like, so not interested in it. No,
1: I mean, it's, it is fascinating to me. And uh, for a number of personal and professional reasons, I've, uh, um, uh, very, uh, dear, probably my best friend in the entire world, uh, is a, uh, works at, um, UBC Waco, which was, an mm-hmm. you know, one of the early kind of emergent stuff around specifically worship music.
0: Was that, that was that Crowder's? Yeah. Okay.
1: So, uh, this is, uh, uh, check him out. Jameson McGregor. I'm going to, I'll do a shameless plug for a friend <laughs> here. He's a uh, worship and arts pastor at UBC Waco. Yeah, this is, you know, this is the emergent church thing is an is an example of this. Like it wasn't and it was a concerted effort to reform a certain aspect of evangelicalism. And again, well, and, and this is a good place to make this point it, to any of the um, stories I tell. I, I try to walk. A, it's a fine line to walk. But I also say, you know, I'm not saying feminist evangelicals don't exist anymore or that one can't be evangelical and feminist or gay and evangelical or whatever i am just talking in you know so this is the the emergent church would be a a good example of there are folks still involved i think in that kind of project but as a kind of movement that had at least in some capacity efforts to change the landscape I'm sure in ways it did, but it also like had serious backlash that pushed a lot of the folks I imagine out of the efforts. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I think about somebody like Brian McLaren is an interesting figure to me because I don't even know if he would identify as evangelical anymore. And that's a fast, you know, that's a, like he was a widely respected evangelical teacher for a long time and he got in trouble a lot for suggesting alternative interpretations of ways of being the church and being Christian. And yeah, I don't know. I haven't talked to, I've, I've met Brian McLean once or twice, but I haven't talked to him in many years. I would be curious, you know, if, 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 uh, somebody like that is now an other evangelical in the history of evangelicalism. Mm, mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. I I mean, that, that whole movement is really interesting and yeah, I, I would love to see some sort of, uh, history around that. I think, Homebrew Christianity, Trip Fuller's podcast is going to be doing some sort of history around the emergent church movement. And again, it was very formative for me while I was in college and uh, to the point where I started working at an emergent church at Solomon's Porch in Minneapolis. And so, uh, and I'm still a part of the church. Uh, So it's just, it really formed a lot. And also it feels like it's one of these stories.
1: Yeah, it could have been. It could have been a chapter or a whole book.
0: It, or it could be a whole book, but Isaac, I feel like I've taken way too much of your time. Uh, last question, how can listeners get connected to you and your work and where should they get the book? Yeah,
1: no, this is, uh, this is a blast. We'll have to do some of this again sometime. Absolutely. I, uh, 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 there's other, uh, there's other avenues we could, uh, trace too, because, uh, I, uh, have this other, it's not directly related to this book, but, um, my, uh, time working and teaching at union seminary. And, uh, I, I have interests that would probably converge with other things you and your listeners, uh, talk about around, uh, liberation theologies. And, Absolutely. uh, I, uh, actually, this will be the last side note. And then I'll, I'll answer your question. Uh, taught with James Cohn. Uh, I was one of the, his last TAs here at union. Oh, uh, lovely. So yeah, there's, that's awesome. Uh, plenty of stories, other stories we can talk that are adjacent to this story, but to find me Twitter, unfortunately, sadly is the, my most frequent uh social media place even though we
0: can we can be our little like trash can uh raccoons out there it is a Twitter mess it is a
1: mess but it is still probably the place that is easiest to find me on social media it's Isaac B sharp um and that handle goes across any others of the places you can find me. Um and the book is available I think the official line is wherever books are sold. Uh, Erdman's is the publisher so the website has it but Barnes and Noble uh local bookstores, uh lots of local bookstores are starting to have it. If you um have a favorite local bookstore, uh ask and request it. Uh because the easiest place to find it is Amazon and that you know is what it is. So yeah.
0: Love it. Well, Isaac unbelievable book. Uh, Again, you know, growing up in the evangelical world, it's just super fascinating to me to see what has happened to it. Uh, And again, these stories of liberal and black and progressive and feminist and gay evangelicals is very much a part of that story. Uh, And so just thank you so much for sharing those stories. I mean, they're just so, so important. Uh, So thank you again. And uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me. This was fun.